0: Please open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. We have spent several messages on chapter 10, which is, as I've said each time, is a vitally important passage of Scripture. It contains the record of the Gospel being brought by the Apostle Peter to the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, who was a Gentile. That was new in the book of Acts. Now, it's been 2,000 years and Gentiles have been flooding into his church and finding the salvation in Christ. But here it was a strange thing. It had not been seen before. Gentiles could become uh, part of Israel, but they had to submit to all of the ordinances of Israel. They had to be circumcised and they had to follow all the customs and the, the dietary laws and so forth. But here the Gentiles are brought into the church and made fellow heirs with the saints. Matthew Henry said, "...the preaching of the gospel to Cornelius... Was a thing which we poor sinners of the Gentiles have reason to reflect upon with great, with a great deal of joy and thankfulness, for it was the bringing of light to us who sat in darkness. Now, as we come to chapter eleven, we find that Luke is still talking about and repeating much of what he's already told us in chapter ten, but. You see, the subject matter is of such importance that he needs to tell us again and, and hammer it home. This time, though, he tells it all through the mouth of the Apostle Peter. And uh, in verse 1 of chapter 11, it tells us that the disciples, uh, now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea, heard that the Gentiles had also received the Word of God. So they're in Caesarea. That's where Cornelius lived. But now all the way over in Jerusalem, they've heard the Word. The news has gotten out. It's spreading, and it's spreading quite fast. Without an Internet, without Twitter, without Facebook, without even email. Now, the Word is getting out. And so... um uh the news is traveling fast. Now, you remember we read in chapter 8 of the account of Philip preaching the gospel to the Samaritans. And the Jews and the Samaritans had a long-standing animosity toward one another. In fact, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And now, Philip, a Jew, preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. They believe. And are baptized and, and that news traveled fast and is, it was of such significance that we're told that when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that the Samaria, that Samaria had received the word, they sent Peter and John to them to verify what's going on and then to lay their hands upon them so that they too would receive the Holy Spirit of God. Now this time, they heard that the Gentiles had also received the Word of God. Now, this is really big. It was big when the Samaritans believed, but now the Gentiles have believed. They don't need to send an apostle, though, or a delegation to check it out, in this case because an apostle is already there on site. Peter, the chief apostle. And he, on his own accord, he He leaves Caesarea and he comes up to Jerusalem. And when he arrives, well, they have some questions for Peter. When the news of what happened in Caesarea reached Jerusalem, it wasn't received with unbridled enthusiasm. Uh, Initially, though, what we see is a grave concern. And they call upon Peter to give an account of his actions in verses 2 and 3. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them! Exclamation point. (laughs) That was a big deal. That was a very big deal. Uh, Peter's critics, who, who were they? Well, it says they were of the circumcision. Now, some have taken this to mean it was a certain party of the circumcision, but it doesn't need to be taken that way. It's really speaking about the Christians because they were all circumcised Jews. They were Jewish Christians. Uh, These were the ones who took issue, who were concerned about what Peter was doing. Uh, Al Mohler speaks of circumcision. He says, circumcision, therefore, was no trifling matter. It marked the fact that Israel was separate from the nation's And holy before the Lord. God is the one who gave circumcision to Abraham, and he was to circumcise his descendants. Again, Muller says these Jewish Christians, however, didn't understand that salvation was not only for the Jews, who had waited for hundreds of years with great expectancy, but also for the Gentiles. If we disregard Israel's long history and the serious call to holiness, represented by circumcision, we may be tempted to believe that these Jewish Christians in Acts 11 are exhibiting nothing more than unwarranted and ugly prejudice. I appreciate that he says that because we could jump to that conclusion, but it's not necessarily so. Now, they did have prejudices. Uh, They they, uh, had had some wrong thinking in, in, in what they thought of the Gentiles, no doubt. But he says that reading, however, is not only unfair to these early Jewish Christians, but it also misses the point of the biblical text. There is something a lot more than racial prejudice here. There is a great, deep, and moral aversion, while wrong, was not wrongly motivated. uh, To to be in contact with the Gentiles would be in contact with, with the wicked world. And they wanted to be separate from that, which is all... Good and fine. Uh, however, they, they're questioning Peter. They're questioning, what are you doing? What were you doing? Eating in a Gentile's home. That was forbidden. Not by the law of God per se, but by their customs. And they had, these customs have been ingrained into them. And so they stayed away from it. Charles Spurgeon sums it up so well. He says, one of the greatest obstacles which the Christian religion ever overcame, was the inveterate prejudice which possessed the minds of its earliest followers. The Jewish believers, the twelve apostles, and those whom Jesus had called from the dispersed of Israel were so attached to the idea that salvation was of the Jews that none but the disciples of Abraham, or at any rate, the circumcised ones, could be saved. That they could not bring themselves to the thought that Jesus had come to be the Savior of all nations, and that uh, that in Him all people of the earth should be blessed. It was with difficulty that they could allow the supposition. It was so opposite to all their Jewish education that we find them summoning Peter before the council of Christians and and, and saying to him, "You went." to men uncircumcised and ate with them. What's going on, they want to know. Well, no doubt Peter anticipated this objection. He understood it very well. It was only a few days before that he held the exact same opinion and conviction they did. As probably every Jew around held. And when the Lord told Peter, when he showed him that vision, which we'll talk about in a moment, about the animals in the sheet coming down, and he told him, rise, kill, and eat, Peter's soul rose in quick and righteous revulsion and said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And you remember also when he arrived at the home of Cornelius, The first words out of his mouth were, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. Well, so why did he do it then? That was his conviction. That was his upbringing. That's everything he knew. I've never eaten an unclean thing. Well, that's exactly why these circumcised brethren wanted to know why did you do this they wanted to know was was he just playing the hypocrite what's going on peter maybe they were beginning to question his integrity questioning that he is or should be an apostle after all and so what we find in verses 4 through 17 peter seeks to exonerate himself from the charge of violating Christian norms and his own conscience by fraternizing with these Gentiles. His answer and his argument of why he's doing it, why he did it and would continue to do it now, his argument is simply this, it was all God's idea, not mine. It was all God's idea, not mine. And that really is a sufficient answer. It should be and was, as we'll see. Charles Simeon said that he, however, in his vindication of his conduct, showed them that he had, that he had acted under the immediate direction of God, who had instructed Cornelius where to send for him and had enjoined him also to comply with the request, which we'll see in a moment. Now, before we look at the argument, That Peter gives here, I want you to notice this as we go through the argument that Peter gives. I want you to notice Peter's demeanor before his critics. Very valuable lessons for each and every one of us to learn. Peter was humble, respectful, and even sympathetic to their concerns. That's quite a remarkable thing. Peter is an apostle. He is the foundation stones of the church. One of the twelve foundation stones of the church. The highest office in the church. Jesus hand-selected him along with the others to be his apostles. And yet, he's humble. He is humble in that he doesn't exert his authority as an apostle, or his standing in the church. He doesn't scold these men for questioning his integrity. What? Don't you trust me? Don't you know who I am? What are you doing calling me to account? No, he completely understands their concern. He knows how it looks. He knows what they've heard. He knows what it sounds like. He doesn't react to their charge. He gets it. And so he answers them in this humble way. He takes his time to carefully lay out everything that had recently transpired. And he's confident that his explanation, when they hear it, will clear everything up for them. And hopefully change their minds as well. And so he begins at the beginning Uh, Let's read beginning in verse 4. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners. And it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God is cleansed, you must not call common. Now this was done three times and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel, an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And so if Peter explains everything in order from the beginning, and if you were to read back over chapter 10, you see that his order of events is a little different than Luke's in chapter 10, but Peter is giving it in the order that he himself experienced, his first-hand account of these things. There's no contradiction whatsoever. Now John Stott said that it took four successive hammer blows of divine revelation before his racial and religious prejudice was overcome as he explains it to the Jerusalem church. And what are those four hammer blows? Well, the first hammer blow was that of the divine vision that he recounts in verses 5 through 10. uh, How he was on the rooftop praying and so forth and the sheet was let down. And then when verses seven through ten, where he heard the voice saying, "'Rise, Peter, kill and eat." but I said, No, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth, and so here's this divine vision: God is telling him to do something that he's never done before to eat unclean animals, and so that was the first hammer blow. He's, he's being tested by God to do something. Now is He testing him to see whether He's going to continue to follow his scruples, or what's going on here? But God tells him to rise and to eat. That's the first hammer blow to dispel his his prejudices against the Gentiles. As we said before, this wasn't all about foods, what you could eat and not eat. That was important for the the Jewish Christian. These were laws, ceremonial laws, that God had given to the people. They weren't moral laws. A moral law cannot be changed. Because a moral law is a reflection of God's own holy character. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. That's all part of God's own moral character himself. But not to eat a certain animal that doesn't have anything to do with God's character. But these were things that God was impressing upon the children of Israel to show that they were to be a nation separate from the other nations. They were the nation. They were God's people. They were following the one true and living God while all the nations went and followed what? Their gods, their idols, the work of their own hands. But Israel, they had the Lord God who made the heavens and the earth as their God. And they were his chosen special people. And they were to be separate from the other nations. And this is one of the ways which God was underscoring how they were to be separate from the other nations. And then when God chose to take that away, he had the perfect right to do so. It fulfilled his purposes in time. And now God says to take and eat. There's the first hammer blow. The second hammer blow, uh what well, God told him, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. That's the first hammer blow. When God tells him, you can eat it, God said it. That settles it. If God said you can do it, you can do it. Now, the problem with a lot of people in our day, they say, God said I could do this when God never said it. So where did God say it? Is it in his word anywhere? Does he show it in his holy word? No. I had a dream, or I had a thought, or an impression, or something of that sort. Well, if it doesn't line up with the Word of God, then it's your thoughts, or it's the devil's thoughts. It's certainly not God telling you to do something if it goes against His own holy Word. But here God told him, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And God did it three times, and it was taken back up into heaven. He impressed upon him, you do what I tell you to do. The second hammer blow was that of divine command. And that's when we see these unexpected, the unexpected arrival of these three men from Caesarea, verses 11 and 12. At that very moment, as soon as that vision had finished, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Now he didn't know that at the time. That was explained to him later, but the Spirit, notice verse 12, Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. So God told him, You go with these men. Wherever they lead you, you go. Alright, there's a hammer blow. He knows now they're, these are Gentiles. And he's to go with these Gentiles to a Gentile's home. They explained to him, they've come from Caesarea, they've come on behalf of Cornelius, this Roman centurion, And he received a a, a visitor, an angel, who said to come and get you and bring you back to him so that you can tell them how to be saved. And so there's another hammer blow. He's got to go. Why? Because God told him to go. God told him, you go with them. Then notice also, there, at the end of verse ten uh, or i 'm sorry at the end of uh, verse twelve, uh, moreover, he points to these men, these six brethren accompanied me when we entered the man 's house so so these men went with him uh, uh, These six brethren came with him to go to cornelius 's house now uh, this is important to help. Uh, help these brethren in Jerusalem to understand what happened. You see, in, in chapter 10, verse 45, these, these six men that went with him are identified in verse 45 of chapter 10 as those of the circumcision who believe. These were Jewish Christians, circumcised Christians. Come with me. You're going. I need you to be with me. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going on, but you come with me. Why? Well, the Bible says at the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And so that's why they're coming, to be witnesses. Now you say, well, Peter, why do you need a witness? You're an apostle. He understands that even he, an apostle, needs a witness. He doesn't want there to be any doubt in anyone's mind about what happened. And so he goes. And he doesn't even know what's going to happen at this point. But something significant is going on, and so he brings these six men with him, to the house of Cornelius. And then when Peter goes on to Jerusalem and is going to give an account of what happened, he brings these six men with him to Jerusalem. They weren't just company, they were witnesses. The third hammer blow was that of divine preparation. Uh, Peter explains that when he gets there to the house of Cornelius, that he is, it is explained to him that Cornelius also had a visitor from heaven. Notice in verses 13 and 14. And he told us, he doesn't mention him by name, but he's speaking of Cornelius, and he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. So there's another confirmation. God is doing something here. God is doing something. This isn't Peter's idea. Let's go Let's go on to Caesarea. Maybe we can find someone to evangelize there. No, God is directing him. Guiding him. But he's also over in Caesarea guiding this man. This Gentile telling him to send for Peter. And so there's that. Blessed coordination. God is working. Divine preparation. Well, God had removed the obstacles, you see. He had removed this obstacle of in Peter's mind and in his scruples, the obstacle of clean and unclean animals, which allowed Peter to go into the house of a Gentile. That's one of the reasons they wouldn't go to the house of a Gentile, because they might be offered food and if they eat some of the food, it may be Unclean food. You don't need to worry about that, Peter. Everything's fine. What I say is clean, let no one call unclean. So he doesn't have to worry. God removed that obstacle. And then God spoke to Peter, and He tells him, You go with them. They're down there waiting for you. You go with them. He goes down there. Sure enough, they want them to go with him. They want him to go with them. And then the instruction given to Cornelius by the angel confirms it all. When he gets there, he realizes I'm in the right place where I belong to preach the Gospel to this man and his household. No doubt about it. John Stott said that God had been working at both ends, in Cornelius and in Peter, deliberately arranging for them to meet. And Peter sees it and he sees it clearly. There's no doubt. He received a vision. Cornelius received an angel of the Lord. Everything is worked out just the way God said it would. But the real clincher is this fourth and final hammer blow, this final revelation to Peter uh, that uh, was this divine action from God. Verses 15 and following, it says... And as I began to speak, as I began to preach, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. The Holy Spirit came upon them. And if you look back in chapter 10, we we read of this account um, in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, he'd been preaching the gospel to them. And when he says here in chapter 11, as I began to speak, it fell. You don't need to take that literally, that he just opened his mouth and said a couple of words and the Holy Spirit came. We read that it's more involved than that. Uh, But still, it was interrupted. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed, those six men who came with him, were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. That's the amazing thing. On the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Tongues, I believe here, is not something that every Christian should expect, but this was a very unique and special situation, just like Pentecost was, that God was showing a sign That He was pouring out His Spirit upon all flesh. But here notice um, that uh, uh, He says the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. He's referring there to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon all flesh. As Stott said, it was the extraordinary similarity of the two events that struck Him. He knew what happened several years before at Pentecost. And now he sees it right here happening again. The exact same thing. But now, it's not to believing Jews. This is to believing Gentiles. The same thing is going on here. Verse 16 says, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how He said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus said to him to all of the disciples in chapter one of Acts, verse five, as he's giving them the great commission, telling them to wait in Jerusalem for the, for the promise. And how he says, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And, um, it's interesting that here Peter says, and then I remembered what Jesus said. That's, a, that's a promise that Jesus gave to his disciples in the upper room before He was crucified, He told them that when the Spirit comes, He will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Then I remembered what the Lord said. God's Spirit reminded Him. That was That's one of the works of the Holy Spirit. He'll, he will remind you of everything I've said. Now, I believe that He meant that promise in a very special and unique way to them as apostles. They would be vehicles of divine revelation. And as they're writing these books and as they're recalling His words, the Holy Spirit would, would bring to their mind everything He said. He said a lot. Remember, He said, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Holy Spirit comes, He will remind you. He'll remind you of those things that I said. But I also believe that He does this for every Christian. He brings His Word to our remembrance. He brings His Word. We may be in a particular situation. We may be talking to someone or or trying to give them some kind of counsel. And God will bring a verse you haven't thought of in in a long time or, or a passage or some truth from the Scriptures. He'll bring it to your mind and you can use that as you seek to counsel them and give them God's counsel, not your own. Al Mohler said this is in part how the Holy Spirit ministers the Word of God to us, bringing to our mind in times of need. Maybe we're going through a particular trial and we remember the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He is the one who leads me beside the still waters. He's the one who leads me to green pastures. He is the one who takes care of me. This is why it's very important for us to follow the admonition of Paul who said, let the Word of Christ Dwell in you richly. Christians need to be in the Bible, reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible. The Holy Spirit will take that and bring it to your remembrance. I remember even soon after I became a Christian and I went off to Bible college just a few years later and I was amazed at the scriptures that I remembered from being a child, even before I was a Christian verses I'd heard the preacher use or I had to memorize in Sunday school, those things just came back to my mind. The Holy Spirit brought it to my mind. Well, here Peter says, then I remembered, verse 16, the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as He gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's remembering this and seeing the parallelism here. This has actually been called the the Caesarean Pentecost. Not the Jerusalem Pentecost, but the Caesarean. It's the same thing is going on here. And now he's putting two, two, two and two together. And he says, Who was I that I could withstand God? You see, the vision that he received of the animals, the command to go with these men, the preparation that he had prepared Cornelius for this as well. And then the action of God when he came and preached, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as He did on them. Together, they demonstrated conclusively, as Stott says, that God had now welcomed the believing Gentiles into His family on equal terms with believing Jews. Now that was the thing that was hard for these Jewish Christians to swallow. They didn't, imma- couldn't imagine that these Gentiles, these idol worshipers, these who walk in darkness, these who, uh, who have no thought of God in their minds, that they could become part of the church. But that's exactly what he saw. That's exactly what he concluded. And so he asked two rhetorical question. The first one, back in chapter 10, uh, when he saw this happening, it says in verse 47, then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. So there's the first rhetorical question. If they've received the Spirit as we have, That means they're Christians. And if they're Christians, they definitely need to be baptized. They need to receive the sign of the covenant, the sign of the baptism of the Spirit. That's what baptism partly is. It's a sign of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, if they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, shouldn't they have the water baptism that symbolizes it? And so who can forbid it? In fact, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course, no one could forbid that. No one should or could forbid that. But then the second one is found in verse 17 of chapter 11. Who was I that I could withstand God? If He gave them the same gift as He gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could withstand God? It would be like fighting against God. That's an amazing thing. But that's the principle they're trying to live by. We've seen it in the book of Acts. When they were preaching, Peter and John were preaching and they were arrested by the same people who arrested and crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were forbidden to preach in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Peter said, to obey God or men, you be the judge. In other words, We're going to obey God. We follow what God says, not what you say. We follow what God says, even if it goes against all of our scruples, even if it goes against all of our customs, our traditions, we're going to follow God. Who could forbid it? Should we withstand this if He gave them the same gift that He gave us? And then look for briefly here at the response of the brethren in Jerusalem. Twofold response. It says in verse 18, And when they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Isn't that an amazing response? First of all, they had no more arguments. There's nothing they could say. That's an amazing thing. When somebody is dead set on one thing, they have a strong opinion, and you try to reason with them, they go, hmm, that makes sense. (laughs) That doesn't happen very often, I don't think. We get so entrenched in our opinions and our ways that we're not going to be moved. Peter, you did something you should not have done. and We're going to hold your feet to the fire. And Peter begins to explain it. When they're done, they go, hmm. They couldn't withstand his logic. It made perfect sense. And this shows us about these men who had these scruples. This shows us that even though they had some what we might call legitimate questions about what was Peter doing, they were still willing to listen and to learn and to change their opinions on things if they could be convinced. They're not ready just to change their opinion. There are a lot of people like that. Oh, you think that? Or most people think this? Okay, I'll start thinking that. Or I'll start believing this or that. No, I don't mean that. But they listened like the Bereans. They received the Word with all readiness of mind. And they searched the Scriptures to see whether those things were so. They were more noble-minded. So these men who had this objection and, and contended with Peter, they weren't so entrenched in their views that they wouldn't listen to sound reason. Reminds me of Martin Luther. When Luther stood before that diet at worms, when he was told to recant his writings, he had written many things on justification by faith and other things and he written things and they told him to recant or you're going to die. And he said, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, I cannot and will not recant. But he also said before this, he said, if you can show me I'll be the first ones to throw these books in the fire. But unless that, unless you can convince me by the scriptures and by good solid reason, I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. That should be our attitude. Not This is my opinion and I'm never going to change. But this is my opinion and I'm not going to change unless by sound reason and Scripture you show me I'm wrong. Then I'll change. And if we're willing to do that, that's a good place. That's a very good place. I don't mean that we should be changing here and there and all over the place for no good reason. Or just because out of popularity this is a new thing. But it must be because the Scriptures teach something. And if the Scriptures teach it, we need to believe it. Take heed to yourself and to your doctrine, Paul says. Hold fast to the things you believe. He told Timothy to hold fast to the things he's learned and been assured of. Knowing from whom he had learned them that the Scriptures Being the Word of God is where he's learned them. Hold fast to that. There was an about face. They listened carefully and they were persuaded by Peter's account of the visions and by his sanctified logic. And it says they glorified God. They rejoiced in God's great sovereign mercy in extending salvation to the Gentiles. This was something to rejoice and to praise God for. Not oh, now what are we going to do with these Gentiles? No, they rejoice because God did something. You see, that's what's happening in this whole passage. God is doing something. That's what the whole book of Acts is about. Some say it's the acts of the apostles. No, it's the acts of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit. God is working. God is working. Christ is building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is what God is doing. And they recognize and got on board with it. And that's what you and I need to do. What we see taught in this passage is is the supreme and overriding authority of God It may go completely against your long-held traditions. But if your traditions aren't based upon God's Word, then they ought to be relinquished. If the things you thought the Bible said, but it doesn't really say, by the authority of God, you should renounce them. This passage also speaks of the sovereign mercy of God to sinners. Look what God did. God was saving sinners. All kinds of sinners. All kinds of sinners. He saved not only these apostles, but He saved these Gentiles. And I love the way these men put it, that God has granted to them, has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. You see what they're saying in this? They're saying God God also granted them That means God granted us that same gift. And repentance, like faith, is a gift of God. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Faith, to believe, is God's gift. Paul said to the Thessalonians, he's granted you not only to suffer for his sake, not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His sake. He's granted that to you. Faith is a gift of God. Well, here is telling us that repentance also is a gift of God. You started seeing your sins for what they really were. They look so beautiful. They look so enticing. Now you say, this is wrong. I need to turn from this. That's God's work. God is doing a work. He's granting you repentance. To turn away from something you love. And to turn to Christ whom you once hated. Now you love Him. You quit calling evil good and good evil. You're calling evil evil and good good. That's repentance. You're saying, Lord, I don't want to do this if it's displeasing to you. That's God granting repentance. And notice it says repentance leading to life. Repentance unto life. See, people would have you believe that repenting, oh, that's a terrible dark word. Oh, repent, repent. Fire and brimstone. No, it's repenting is to life. Not repenting is death. Remember, Paul's talking about to Timothy and he's telling him to how he should be patient when instructing those who are in opposition. He says, if perhaps God will grant them what? repentance, seeing that they've been led captive by the devil to do his will. They're sinning. They're walking in darkness. That's the darkness. That's the death. Not repenting is death. Continue following your ways is death. Repent or you, Jesus said, will likewise perish if you don't repent. But repentance is to life. Repentance is seeing my sins for what they really are and seeing Christ for who He really is. Seeing the beauty of Christ, the grace of the Lord, the mercy of God. You see not only your sin, but you see the blessedness of Christ and you turn in faith to Him. That's life. It's not a terrible thing. Someone said repentance is like the dark clouds finally breaking up and the sun comes through. It's like, oh, the spring has sprung. This is beautiful again. Not the dark foreboding clouds of sin and wrath, but now I've repented and turned. Let me ask you, are you the most happy when you are repenting of your sins or when you're indulging in your sins? It's when you're repenting from them. Turn from them. Turn to Christ. He's willing. He's ready to forgive. He's full of mercy and compassion. And He says, Turn from those things and turn to Me. And I'll save you. They believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and they were saved. They received the Holy Spirit. They all received it. They're not the haves and the have-nots. There's a false teaching out there that says "Oh, some Christians have the Spirit while others don't. No, the Bible says we all have it. They were all baptized with the Spirit. There were different things going on here, I realize. But it was a transitional time. It was a significant time of bringing the Gentiles in. God was showing many things here to put His stamp of approval on it. But the Bible teaches that all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have been baptized. We've all, Paul said, been baptized by one Spirit into one body. If you turn from your sins and turn to Christ, you're baptized with the Spirit. He indwells you. He gives you strength. He gives you joy. He gives you direction. Let's turn to him now in prayer. Father in heaven, thank